Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Uh, Well, happy uh, third Sunday of Easter. Uh, The celebration of resurrection and new life continues, and the party is just getting started. That's right. So, he is risen. That's right. We don't just say that on a single Sunday of the year, but a whole Easter tide season, because in the kingdom, uh, the feast always outlasts the fast. So uh, with that being said, let's look and continue on. We're looking at stories kind of post-resurrection. So let's look at Luke chapter 24, and we're going to pick up right actually where Grace left off. So she looked at the story of the Emmaus Road. So we'll still be in Luke 24, but reading uh, beginning at verse 36. So Luke 24, 36 through 43, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It says this, while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see me, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it, and he ate it in their presence." This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, before we get into the heart of the message this morning, I want to point out two uh, things in this passage that I feel like are important, but not kind of really where I wanted to focus the message, uh, but too important to just ignore. Uh, So let me do a couple, uh, like, kind of quick mini-sermon here at the beginning. Uh, I want to first point out that uh, the first words that Jesus speaks to them is peace be with you. And it's important to recognize that at this time, this is, this is the evening of the first Easter. This is resurrection evening. Uh, and so this is a chaotic time, a confusing time, a disruptive time. Does any of that sound familiar, right? I mean, there's all sorts of things going on in the world, and Jesus' word to the disciples in the midst of chaos and confusion and disruption is... Peace be with you. May the shalom of God rest over your lives. We live in an age of angst. We live in an age of outrage. There's, and there's lots of things to be outraged about. But as Christians, we are to embody and to receive the peace of God. It also is important to recognize we've been talking about how resurrection is the first sign of new creation. And it's important to recognize that some of the first words spoken over and in God's new creation is, in fact, peace be with you. 
And so I think that's important for us to recognize, that if we are going to be new creation people, we need to first receive the peace of God, that we might also then share and embody the peace of God in our lives. Amen. The other thing I want to point out, and this relates to Rick's message last week, is joy and disbelief coexist in the disciples. Joy and disbelief coexist in the disciples. We tend to think of them as enemies of one another. They can't coexist, right? That they're opposites of one another. And yet what we find in verse 41 is say, it says, while in their joy, they were disbelieving. <laughs> this strikes me that it is possible to be totally captured and brought to joy by the story of Jesus and the gospel and at the same time have some questions. It's possible to be brought to joy by the beauty of this message and at the same time not have everything worked out. It occurs to me that the disciples were living really close to the resurrection. You know what I mean? I mean, their, their situation, they are right in the thick of it. And sometimes when you're living really close to a situation, it's hard to discern and see clearly all that is going on. That often comes with time as we look back at the situation, we can see it a little more clearly. But the disciples are right here living so close to resurrection and they are overwhelmed with joy and still have a bunch of questions. <laughs> and it's okay for us as Christians to kind of recognize and rest that those two things can coexist in the same person as they were coexisting in the disciples. That to have questions does not negate your discipleship. To have uh, some doubts or uncertainties or questions can, does not have to rob you of the beauty and the joy that you see in the gospel message. And this is something that in my own life has sustained my faith through difficult times. Difficult times come and I have all kinds of questions, all kinds of uncertainties and doubts, and yet there is something about this narrative of new life, resurrection, the beauty of the gospel, it just reminds me that these things can coexist. So there you go. That's mini sermon number one. The next one, I trust, trust me, is a full-blown sermon. So here we go. Uh, the other thing that our passage is really intent on pointing out is emphasizing the body of Jesus. And by the body of Jesus, I mean the body of Jesus, right? A big thanks to Rick last week for preaching uh, on a very similar message, right? Uh, if you were there, you heard it. And listen, if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's a phenomenal message uh, and in particular, I loved what Rick had to say about why Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, bears the scars of the cross. If that piques your interest, you're just going to have to listen to the podcast, okay? So I love that. But this, this passage is similar to what Rick tackled last week, because there's a huge emphasis on the body of Jesus. Jesus says to the disciples, look at my hands and my feet, and see that it is me. Touch and see, right? Uh, he then he eats in front of them. And he even mentions that, hey, by the way, ghosts don't have flesh and bones. I kind of, this is silly, but I imagine Jesus 
taking a big old bite of a broiled fish and being like, can a ghost do that? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just like going after it and saying, like emphasizing, this is in fact me. I am really here. There's a clear attempt to make sure that the reader of the gospel knows that Jesus appeared to the disciples in a physical body. Now, resurrection is a bit of a bold claim, right? <laughs> I mean, resurrection is a bold claim. Uh, and, and so many in the ancient world, as in our own, simply did not believe that it could happen or that it did happen. So when the rumor of resurrection started getting traction, those that didn't believe tried to come up with all kinds of explanations of what might have happened, right? Resurrection doesn't happen, this can't happen, this isn't real, and yet all these people associated with the Jesus movement seem to be believing it, so what can we come up with otherwise? What is a verifiable explanation for this? And here are some of the theories. One theory was that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Uh, the theory was that he was still alive when they took him down from the cross. After three days' rest, he was able to appear to the disciples and crowds, now bearing scars from his wounds, but having never died. This is known as the swoon theory. <laughs> and it simply says that Jesus went on to live the rest of his life and quietly died many years later. Okay? That was one theory kind of circling around in, first century, uh, in the first century about how do we explain resurrection. Another one claims that the, 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 that the disciples stole Jesus' body out of the tomb and then simply lied about the resurrection. Stole Jesus' body, hid it away, and then just told a bold-faced lie about resurrection. Uh, others thought that maybe the disciples were so excited, so emotionally pent up that they had visions of Jesus, who was actually dead and lying in the tomb, but, the, but these visions of Jesus. In other words, they didn't really see Jesus, but they saw a vision of Jesus, which this passage is clearly trying to refute. Uh, one of the more practical theories said that the disciples went to the wrong tomb right? Uh, that they found an empty tomb, all right, but it was not the tomb in which Jesus had been buried. And so Luke, who's writing this gospel, was likely emphasizing the physical resurrection of Jesus, perhaps in part to try to refute some of these uh, theories that were discrediting or tried to discredit the resurrection. And that's a perfectly reasonable explanation for why Luke would write this. He wanted to show that Jesus was actually physically dead, and then he appeared to his disciples actually physically alive. And so Luke, in many ways, had a very practical reason uh, for writing his gospel, but also emphasizing in his gospel uh, the body of Jesus. Well, that's all very interesting, Pastor Andy. Let's get to the real meat here, because I don't have any life application. Here we go. Let's remember that just like the Gospel of John, let's assume that Luke is writing primarily as a theologian, not just a historian. In other words, Luke is really trying to tell us something theological. He's not just trying to record history. I mentioned on Easter Sunday that John was not live-tweeting the resurrection, he actually had time to reflect on the meaning of resurrection and then offered to us his gospel written as a theological text. The same is true for all the gospels, including the gospel of Luke. This is a theological text with history in it, of course, but it's a theological text. So here's the theological point that I think 
Luke is trying to make. The resurrected Christ is the same person as the historical Jesus. The eternal and resurrected and living Christ is the same person as the historical Jesus, the one who conquered sin and, de sin and death through death and resurrection is the same one who had performed miracles, cared for the poor, and loved the sinner. Now, I don't see any of you writing notes. I didn't hear any amens. No one is getting excited because you might say, well, duh, that's obvious. But let's hold on just a moment. Isn't it true that in our lives, we tend to emphasize the eternal nature of Christ while sometimes ignoring the historical Jesus? Isn't it true in our lives of faith that we love to talk about the reality of resurrection and a spiritual version of Jesus, but we tend to kind of want to ignore the teachings of Jesus, like, say, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and some of you are thinking this is a rather accusatory tone. This is something that all of us do, where we tend to overemphasize the eternal, spiritual, resurrected Christ who has assured a blissful afterlife for me. Hurrah! And then when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, we say, I don't know about that. That's not very practical. Or we hear the teachings of Jesus and we say, you know, Jesus, he lived a long time ago. He's not really up to speed on our own kind of culture and what's going on in our world. And so he's pretty far removed, but yay, resurrected Jesus, right? And what the Gospel of Luke is trying to say is that they're the same person. <laughs> they're the same person. So we all struggle with this. For example, as a Christian, I may adopt a love of money and a posture of greed and selfishness with my finances from the culture that assigns value based on accumulation and finds security in stuff. I may do that. While at the very same time, placing my faith and my trust in Jesus who has assured me a place in heaven. As a Christian, I might believe that violence solves problems, so I might be tempted to either condone violence or even participate in violence or revenge, while basically ignoring the stuff that Jesus had to say about loving your enemies. Or, let's try to step on everybody's toes here, I might be convinced that political systems express God's values and therefore give my allegiance away to a party or a group and make Jesus the mascot for that group. This happens on both sides of the political aisle, by the way. That we sort of adopt the primary allegiance of, a, of this group or that group and then we just try to attach Jesus, and this is harsh language, right? But let's just be honest. We try to attach Jesus as a mascot for that group. But when I do this, I've lost sight of the uniqueness of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. 
And let me say this, I talk about the God's kingdom a lot, right? And some of you are like, Andy has one message. It's the kingdom of God. And every week we come and we hear about the kingdom of God. Well, here's, here's my pastoral and theological conviction. I have one message because Jesus had one message. Uh, and that, with, like, without exaggeration, uh, without any hint of sarcasm, I think that everything Jesus did was either an, uh, an enactment or an announcement of the kingdom of God. Everything Jesus did was either announcing or enacting the kingdom of God. He's, he's going about in his ministry and he's saying, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. When God is in charge, this is what life looks like. He's showing us and redefining what it means to be human centered around the new creation and being a citizen of that new creation. And so, sometimes when we get our allegiances mixed up, it gets really ugly really fast. And so let me say this, this concept as clearly as I can. If we don't hold together the eternal Christ with the historical Jesus, we are in danger of adopting the same philosophy and worldview as, the, as our nation of residents with a spiritual Jesus tacked on the end to take care of afterlife affairs. I'll say that again. If you're taking notes, this is pure gold, <laughs> okay? If we don't hold together the eternal Christ with the historical Jesus, we are in danger of adopting the same philosophy and worldview of our nation of residents with a spiritual Jesus tacked on the end to take care of afterlife affairs. There it is. And the, what the Gospel of Luke is doing with the emphasis on the body of Jesus. Jesus was like, do you have anything to eat? And the disciples were, yes, here's a fish, and Jesus ate it in their presence. And Jesus said, look at me, it's really me, I'm not a ghost, touch and see, look at the scars, right? All this kind of emphasis on the body of Jesus. What, what the Gospel of Luke is trying to do is insist that any discipleship in the name of the eternal Christ must be rooted in the ways of the historical Jesus. I was just waiting for an amen, right? Any discipleship of the eternal Christ must be rooted in the ways of the historical Jesus. Here's another way of thinking about this same thing. The resurrection of Christ did not simply redefine death, right? Sometimes we think about resurrection as a redefinition of death, as in death is now my friend because it brings me to a disembodied existence with God. In that sense, we're kind of redefining death, right? But resurrection doesn't redefine death. Resurrection overcomes death. It's death undone. It's, it's, it's death defeated by new bodily life. And so, the bold claim of Christianity is that Christ has defeated the power of death so that you and I will experience bodily resurrection in God's new creation. That's the bold claim of Christianity. If we only get so far as to say, Jesus 
kind of paid the punishment for your sin, and now you live as a soul in heaven. We've only gotten halfway there. You with me? Hopefully you got your thinking caps on today, right? We've only gotten halfway there because the, the hope and bold claim of Christianity is that what God did for Jesus in the bodily resurrection, inaugurating the new creation, he will do for all of those who call on Christ in faith. Amen. This is why death is not our friend necessarily, but we as Christians have no reason to fear death, right? So, so in some sense, it's redefined as something that we want to be afraid of or, or tend to be afraid of. As Christians believing in bodily resurrection, we have no reason to fear death, but we are people of life. Okay, so the hope of the Christian faith has never been that your soul will flow off into heaven. It has always been that you will experience bodily resurrection in a world made new. And if the great hope, or since the great hope of Christianity, is bodily life in new creation, so that's the great hope, then the great responsibility of the Christian is to partner with God in proclaiming and bearing witness to that new creation. The conviction of the Christian is that right here in the midst of the brokenness of our world, there is a new world breaking in. And it is the responsibility and privilege of the Christian to say, look, there it is, new creation. Or, or, and this is like God's beautiful intention for the church that we continually lean into, is that the world would look at us and say, wow. there's something new happening over there because they don't define their relationships in the same way. And even in the midst of terrible offense, they don't seek revenge or, or just go to violence. They offer forgiveness and mercy to one another and seek reconciliation. What is wrong with them? Who do they think they are? Christ? Kind of, because we are Christians, which literally means being of Christ, bearing witness to Christ. I'm preaching a lot better than you all are responding, so <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. So the, <laughs> so the eternal Christ is the first evidence of new creation, and the Spirit of Christ is the power that enables us to bear witness to it but it's all grounded in the life and ministry of the historical Jesus. We have to have both together. So when you see the Gospel of Luke and you see all this stuff about Jesus ate with them, you might just think, oh, this is just kind of like historical fodder, like they're just kind of telling us, like they're just getting us to the next exciting thing, right? Oh, this is just a bridge to say that Jesus ate, um, and then now let's get to the real stuff. And actually the real stuff is right here because he's writing as a theologian not a historian, not just a historian, right? So he's trying to tell us discipleship, I'll say it again, discipleship of the eternal resurrected Christ must be rooted in the ways of the historical Jesus. Or let's not practice an over-spiritualized faith. 
Let's practice a faith rooted and grounded in the ways of Jesus that were rooted and grounded in the world, which is why we gather around the Lord's table, where we take very common earthly elements of bread and of juice, and we say these things represent a spiritual reality beyond themselves. But we don't just think about that. We don't just imagine that. We ground it in bread and wine. That's part of why we take communion or we receive communion. So let's do just that after a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, today we are thankful for the ministry, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, in these moments, help us to ground our faith in our real and everyday and earthly and fleshly lives. There's a real attraction to over-spiritualizing our faith, to believing only in the eternal and resurrected Christ for whom we give thanks and praise. God, today we recognize that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is in fact resurrected, but also lived on this world and proclaimed the reality of the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, help us in these moments to ground our faith in the everydayness of life. to listen intently to the words of Jesus because they represent for us what it means to be citizens of God's new creation. But Heavenly Father, today we confess that we need the spirit of the resurrected Christ to help us, to take residence in us so that we can read the teachings of Jesus and begin to think about what does it mean to follow this in our lives. We're all on different points in the journey, but what's important is that we are listening intently, leaning in, and seeking to grow. And so, Lord, help us. May it begin in our homes and in our families, in our closest relationships. And may it then extend out into all of creation. So God, be with us. And be with us as we gather around your table. To not just remember and proclaim the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also, God, that you might speak to us in these moments, that you might transform us, that these elements might be a means of grace for us. So God, meet us at the table, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name.